this church, you guys, you guys sure are a blessing to me and my family. You know, the, the month of October is um, a Pastor Appreciation Month. It is a, a month set aside by churches. I'm not sure who started that. I assume a pastor started a long time ago and said, you know what, I need to be appreciated. Let's make an entire month about pastors, though. You know, isn't that just the way? Like moms, you get one day, dads, you get a day, and uh, pastors, you get a whole month. So, you know, not going to say I'm going to change that, but, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that was probably a, a pastor that started that. So it is a, a beautiful thing to be appreciated, but I got to tell you, this church, uh, there is there is so much love in this church for God. There is so much love in this church for myself, my wife, my family, our pastoral staff, that honestly, we don't need an entire month uh, to remind us that we are appreciated. I feel that every time I'm with you guys. Whether it's in the school, I feel appreciated by the families. Whether it's here at church, when we worship, I feel appreciated talking with you at your house when I'm you know, hanging out with you guys. Uh, don't ever feel like this church is lacking that area. You guys are great at showing appreciation. And, I, and it is. Uh, it is very much appreciated on my part for the love that you give my family and the families of my staff. But I got to tell you, practically, I appreciate that, you know, we can make mistakes up here. I can make mistakes up here on stage, and you guys just laugh it off, or you sing it off, and like, whatever, it's just for us, and let's just keep going. <laughs> so I am grateful that's on a practical side. Thank you for that. And that was my fault, not Josh's fault. I don't want to throw him under the bus. I missed my cue, but Josh kept going. He looked at me a little weird and said, what are you doing? And I don't know, man. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just praising here. I'm just singing. All right, well, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we are, we are continuing our missions emphasis. I love the fact that we have a whole month for missions. And uh, every year, if you've noticed, we do it a little different. I had said last week, you know, I'm not preaching the same messages every October, every missions emphasis. I'm not preaching the same text we are preaching the same theme. It is missions. It is outreach. So you're going to see some ideas that were taught uh, last year that are going to be taught this year because the idea is outreach. The idea is evangelism. The idea is community, not just this community. And I got to tell you, the longer I'm in this community, the more I love this community. You know, some people, it's like the more you get to know them, the more you don't like them. I don't know. That's not the case for me. All right. I don't feel that way. The more I get to know this church community, the more I love you. The more I get to know Meriden community, the more I love Meriden. And uh, I, I love that God has called me here. But we cannot be so focused on here that we lose sight of there. You know, I think a lot of churches actually struggle with the opposite. I think a lot of churches are so focused on there world missions that they've lost sight of here, their community. And I got to tell you, for me, I think if you were going to get one right, I think you need to get the community right. The community that you're in, as long as you got that, you're heading in a good direction. But that's just heading in a good direction. And I do believe, Meriden Hills, we've got that down. Like, we love our community. We are trying to help our community. We are trying to show our community what Christ's love and truth looks like on a practical level. I think we've got that. What I think that we need to be reminded of is there is more than here. There is there. And the reason is, I think human nature, it's easy to get so focused on one thing, you lose sight of something else. And you're, oh, I got to focus on this, and you lose sight on that. Oh, I got to focus on this, and you lose sight of that. Right? It's hard to look at the big picture, but doesn't mean it can't be done. So this month, we are looking at the big picture, both here and there, both you and them, both me and you, right? The big picture. Missions Emphasis Month. We're going to start in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and verse 1. 
The former treaties have I, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in chapter one. Let me go to chapter two. Uh, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. You know, the Bible uh, is pretty great at giving us some amazing events here in, in Scripture. And one of them we find here is the story of the Pentecost. I really love the story of the Pentecost. It's a great story that a lot of people obviously know well if you're a Christian you know the story of the Pentecost you know the story they spoke in tongues and there is cloven tongues of of fire above their heads it says like as fire by the way so if you touched it with your with your finger burn I kind of don't think it would I kind of think it looked like fire but wasn't actually heat above their head but I do believe that this is a text that is much deeper than many pastors often preach it to be let me give you some background history of the Pentecost before we move on, because I think this background history is going to open up this text for you. First of all, did you know that the word Pentecost actually means 50? So 50 related to 50 days. Well, 50 days. Is the Pentecost a 50-day celebration? No, the Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. So if you think way back in the Old Testament, you remember when Moses was in Egypt and the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites and the Israelites for quite some time were under the thumb of the Egyptians, could not leave. If they did, you know, death, destruction, it was pretty bad for the Israelites. They're crying out to God, God, please send someone to save us. Please send someone to save us. Moses is born an Israelite, put in a basket down the river, and the daughter of Pharaoh takes him and raises him as the family of Pharaoh. Moses thinks, man, at 40 years old, right? This guy has waited a long time. He's 40 years old. And Moses is thinking, you know, it's about time someone did rescue the Israelites. Unlike some of the Hollywood versions of Moses portray, the Bible is pretty clear. Moses knew he was a Jew, right? He would have looked different than the, than the Egyptians. Also, his mother had the chance to raise him to his at least two or three, if not four or five, we're told until he was, he was done nursing. And in, and in those cultures, you know, there was no formula, things like that. They would have nursed longer. I would say at least so two or three. So she had the chance to kind of shape his early years. So there was no secret. People didn't hide the secret from Moses. Everyone knew Moses was a Jew. Pharaoh's family knew he was a Jew. Pharaoh's servants knew he was a Jew. The Jews knew he was a Jew. Moses knew he was a Jew. Everyone knew there was no hiding that fact. Moses grows up in the palace. Do you think a little guilty? think it's possible that Moses thinks, man, I mean, my mom, my family who are still alive, you know, living over in Goshen in the land of the slaves, and I'm living here in the, in the capital city, in the palace. I would imagine there's some guilt there. But the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 that Moses purposely chose God and his people over Pharaoh and the kingdom. So at 40, Moses says, I'll rescue the Jews. I'll do it. Me, me, me. And he thinks he's going to rescue the Jews through warfare. He literally tries to start a rebellion by killing one of the soldiers. I can only assume that Moses thought, if I do this, it will start, it'll spark a fire in the heart of the other Jews. We'll have an uprising and we'll wipe out the Egyptians and, uh, in warfare and march out of here free men. It didn't go as Moses had hoped. He kills this soldier in front of two guys. I think in Moses' head, I'm the hero. They're going to follow me. And the two guys don't have that response. In fact, 
they whisper and gossip about Moses. And the next day, Moses goes to some other guys and says, hey, you need to stop Stop being cruel to each other. You need to stop, uh, uh, stop being harmful and, and offensive to each other. You know, let's, we're all Jews. Let's work together. And they basically look at Moses and say, what are you going to do, kill us too? At that point, Moses, Moses knew I made a mistake. His rebellion was not going to happen. So he runs away. And for 40 years, he's living in the desert with regret. Again, I mean, poor guy, right? We don't know there's regret. I can only assume from human nature there was regret. Regret for living in the palace and the Jews not. And then regret for living in the wilderness, not being able to start the rebellion he so passionately wanted to do. After 80 years of regret, God says, Moses, now I'll use you. I mean, seriously, God, now you'll use me? <laughs> Moses is 80. You know what his response is? You can't use me. I don't want to be used. I can't. I don't have the voice and the passion. I don't have the ability to communicate effectively. You can't use me. It's funny. He wanted to be used at 40, and God said, not time yet. And now at 80, God says, let's go. Moses says, nope, I'm done. <laughs> you know, be careful that you, you keep your time on God's time. Don't try to keep God's time on your time. And so Moses is brought back, the plagues, right? Egypt goes through all kinds of chaos. God is punishing them. God is also showing them that their gods are fake, false, and weak. He literally uses plagues to make fun of their gods. I love that. God has a sense of humor. And then at the end of these plagues, one of, you know, towards the end, at the final, God says, all right, we're now going to have the, the last plague because the, the Egyptians just won't get the hint. And so God sends the angel of death. Now, is the angel of death an actual good angel doing the bidding of God, or does God allow a demon to kill um, the Bible doesn't clarify. I personally believe the angel is a good angel enacting the judgment of God. That's my personal belief. Don't know that I could prove that in Scripture, but either way, it doesn't matter. A, a spirit is allowed to move and to kill the firstborn of anyone who does not put themselves under the protection of God himself. You say, how does one put themselves under the spiritual protection of God? Well, God made it pretty easy. He said, kill a lamb, take the blood, put it over your doorstep, and I will give you spiritual protection, and that angel of death will not touch your family. Well, there were some foolish enough to not take the protection that God offered, and those who were foolish enough to not take it suffered, and their firstborn in that house died. So the Jews celebrated the Passover every year, which is a memory of, I always say all the events leading up, but definitely that one event of the culmination of the Jews' freedom. Now, about 50 to 60 days later, the Jews find themselves at Mount uh, Sinai. And Moses is traveling up, up Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. This is about 50 to 60 days. We don't have an exact time. There's no way to know the exact day, but it's around that time. Moses receives the law of God and, and from that time on, the Jews become an established nation with an established, you might say, constitution. Rules by which they follow, which for them were both religious in nature, moral in nature. They, they had health laws. They had uh, relationship laws, business laws, financial laws. They had farm laws. I mean, God was basically writing their constitution. And their constitution was, was uh, not just uh, telling them how to act towards each other, but how to act towards God as well. And so... In that law, God said, I want you to celebrate, first of all, the Passover, and then 50 days later, I want you to celebrate the Feast of Harvests. Now, I'm almost done here. This is important. The Feast of Harvests. What is the Feast of Harvests? It was basically one of many holidays for the Jews that represented our Thanksgiving. 
We have a Thanksgiving in November, once a year, where we sit down and say we are so thankful for what God has done. We are thankful for what we have. The Jews had that on multiple occasions throughout the year. They had more than one Thanksgiving. You love Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. How would you like to have Thanksgiving like three or four times a year? That would be great, right? And, and by the way, it really was. Like they would have lots of food. They would have family together. They would have family travel from afar to be with you. And it was a legitimate like Thanksgiving holiday throughout the year more than once. And one of them was the Feast of Harvest, which was 50 days after the Passover. So on the Passover, they are thankful directly for their freedom and that, that they survived the, 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 the judgment of God on the Egyptians and, and those who disobeyed. 50 days later, they are being thankful for, for things in general, but specifically for the harvest, watch what it's called, the Feast of Harvest. They were thankful for the food that they had and the family that they had. And so the word Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is not found in the Old Testament because it is not an official name that God gave. God said, in, after 50 days, celebrate the Feast of Harvest. So what are the apostles and the disciples celebrating at the Pentecost? They are celebrating the Jewish version of Thanksgiving, which came 50 days after the Passover. Now, Jesus Christ died the day before the Passover, which would have been the traditional time where the Passover lamb would have been slaughtered. Jesus died on that day. He was supposed to be buried before the Passover. That was what all the, all the chaos was. We've got to get him off the cross and the tomb before the high Sabbath, before the, before the Passover. So he's lying in the tomb through the Passover. Friday, he's lying in the tomb through Saturday. And then he raises on the third day. And then he stays with the disciples, 100 plus, for 40 days. 40 days, we're told. He walked the, the region and revealed himself and did many miracles and, and had proofs. We saw that Acts chapter 1 for 40 days. So if you do the math, you'll find that it's about 43 days after his death that he ascends to heaven. And in the ascension to heaven in Acts chapter 1, he says, Now, go to Jerusalem and wait for the blessing of the Holy Spirit. How long did they have to wait? Well, if you do the math, you know, one week. They waited one week. We don't know this, but it's very likely that in, in my belief that, um, it, again, doing the math, it's very likely that Jesus Christ ascended on a weekend, Saturday or Sunday, and it's very likely that the Pentecost was on the weekend as well, very likely Sunday. So you've got, not to, to claim that, you know, Sunday is the, anything more than it already is. It is the day we, that represents the uh, a resurrection of Christ, which is a beautiful thing, and it is the first day of the week, and, and that's great. We don't need to make it more than it actually is, but it is kind of interesting how that works out, but I'll say this. Jesus Christ died on the day that they slaughtered the lamb. Jesus Christ rose after the Passover, after the time where all the fear would be gone, and after the time where, where the Jews would, would have already celebrated the Passover, kind of moving towards the time of Thanksgiving. Jesus Christ ascended before the time of Thanksgiving, before the Feast of the Harvest, and he said, go wait for the gift, and the gift that he gave, he gave to them on the day of Thanksgiving, on their Thanksgiving. On their Feast of Harvest, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. One more thing, and we'll actually get into our message. The Jews, over time, had started to include other celebrations in that 50-day celebration of the harvest. It, it remained a day of Thanksgiving to this day. The Jews today still celebrate 50 days after the Passover. They celebrate a Thanksgiving holiday, and, and it's in recognition of the harvest. But over time, the Jews started including in that 
celebration, a thankfulness for the law. Why would they do that? Because remember what I told you, it was about 50 to 60 days after the Passover that they received the law. So the law of God became a major part of their thankfulness during that celebration. So it was a thanksgiving service of both the food and the harvest and the spiritual food, the books of the law that God had given them. And then on the day of Pentecost, God says, I want to give you something that fulfills the law, right? Christ was the ultimate fulfillment of the law, but then Christ said, I have to leave and give someone in my replacement, and that's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit and the age of grace now comes in complete fulfillment, continuing on what Christ had done when he died on the cross, when he rose again, he fulfilled the law, yes, and then he said, now we're gonna, I'm going to have a new covenant with you, and the Holy Spirit's going to be that new covenant. And on the day of Thanksgiving, they received the Holy Spirit, the new covenant in their life. That is the day of Pentecost. Now, we as Christians think of the day of Pentecost as a day of speaking in tongues, as a day of of great revival, and that's a beautiful thing because it really was the beginning, the infancy of the church. But we need to understand why the Jews were there, what they were celebrating, the significance of the day, and why would God choose that day to send the Holy Spirit? Well, I hope you now have a deeper understanding of why God chose that day. As the Jews are saying, thank you, God, for the law, and thank you, God, for our our nourishment, our physical food, God says, great, now I'm going to give you something better. You know, I believe that it is a, a very necessary thing to be thankful to God. But I also believe that as you are thankful to God, you will no longer need more. But I often find that as you offer thanks to God, you do receive more. (laughs) Now, don't try to play God. Don't say, well, if I thank him more, he'll give me more. God's not foolish, right? He doesn't play that game. But I'm saying when we are truly, sincerely thankful, I do find that oftentimes God does bless us even more. All right, so this morning's message is titled United. United, because I do see that in Acts chapter 2. The church, first century church, starts as one. In the book of first, uh, first book of Acts, we find that the Jews are in the upper room praying. And uh, they come together with one heart, with one purpose, with one prayer. And God blesses them during that time. And then we find a continued unity in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Again, We saw them with one accord, one mind, one heart in the book of Acts chapter 1. Now we see them one heart, one mind, Acts chapter 2. So the church starts off united. It's hard to to find success when there are separate views, separate philosophies, separate missions, separate uh, desires, separate actions. When we're working together, you are much more likely to attain success. And one of the most important times for that to happen is at the beginning of something new. If you're going to start a company, it is so imperative that everyone involved, all the co-owners, everyone else who's financially involved, is all on agreement of what you're doing, your mission statement, where you're going, and what you're going to do. You've got to be united. It is so important in a relationship that at the beginning of that relationship, and the beginning is not at the wedding altar. That is not the beginning. (laughs) Because if that's the first time you met them, you're in trouble, right? The beginning is before you say, I do. And it is so important that in marriage, there is a unity at the beginning. The I do, I do is a new beginning, but not the beginning. 
And so, is there one purpose, one goal, one mind at the beginning of this relationship, this friendship, which fosters into something more? Is there a one mind, one focus, one goal at the beginning of a church and a direction the church is going? Because there can be more than one beginning. A lot of times, leaders will push through a beginning on their own and say, that's all right, they'll catch up later. A lot of times, husbands push through beginnings and say, it's all right, she'll catch up later. A lot of times, parents push through beginnings and say, it's all right, they'll catch up later. The kids will catch up later. That may not always be the case. It's much better to slow down, take it easy, take a seat, and say, let's go through this again so we're on the same page before we get going, before we get moving. All right. Do you think God does the same thing with you? If what I say is true, if it is so important to have unity before something new happens, before something great happens, then why is God waiting to do something great in your life? Why is there hesitancy, from our point of view, for something amazing in your life? Could it be that God is saying, we're not moving until we're together? We're not moving forward as something new until we're united on what we're moving towards. (laughs) Because movement, just for the sake of movement, isn't healthy because you could be going the wrong way. Folks, could it be in the Old Testament where God says, how can two walk together lest they be agreed? And that text is referring to us and God directly. Could it be that God is saying, we're not in agreement. You're not in agreement with what I want for your life. You're not in agreement with the focus, the goal, the mission that I have for your life. Therefore, we're not going anywhere. And if you go somewhere, you're not going there without, with, with me. You're going without me. Step back, sit down, calm down, and say, am I one with God? Am I in unity with God? When you find that, you're more likely to find movement forward. So that's what we find with the church. They're in unity, and they're about to see some massive movement forward because of the unity. And the unity didn't start here. It had started in chapter 1, at least days before. And I think it was fostered by Christ. His teaching and his love had encouraged this unity. And so for weeks now, the church is becoming more and more united on their mission statement, which was Christ. Christ was their mission statement. I see three points this morning. United in thanksgiving, united in worship, and united in purpose. I had told you that the Feast of Harvest called the Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2 was a feast of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for the food that they had, the harvest that they had, and the law, the, the, the direction that God had given them. So they're coming together Acts chapter 2, verse 1, united in their thankfulness. Yes, they are worshiping, and we'll talk about that shortly. But to begin with, the reason they are together is they want to celebrate a time of thanksgiving together. And so I see letter A. During a time between loss and abundance, the first church was thankful. What was the time of loss? Well, Christ had ascended. Yes, he said that uh, I will come back someday, and he said I will send the Holy Spirit someday. He didn't specify which day. It was only going to be seven days, but the, the disciples didn't know that. Could have been seven weeks or seven years. He said, go to Jerusalem and wait till I send. So the time of sending, the time of receiving, the time of blessing they knew was coming had not arrived yet. The time of loss, Christ had ascended. Christ was gone They loved him deeply, and the Holy Spirit had not filled that void yet. There was an emptiness inside them to have known, seen, touched, 
hugged, felt, and to be hugged by Christ, and then for him to be gone, major loss. How have you felt when someone you love deeply moved? Major loss. How have you felt when someone you love deeply passed from this life into the next? Major loss. Well, Christ went to heaven. Is it that big of a loss? Your loved one to heaven. It's still loss, right? The lost connection hurts. They're in a time of pain right now, a time of sorrow. Yes, they know good is coming. They get that. They were promised that, but that hasn't happened yet. They're in between that time. But they didn't let the in-between keep them from being thankful. Thankful for what they had and thankful for what they were going to be given. Thankful for what they had already received. Yes, Christ was gone, but thankful for the time they had with Christ. Thankful for, for the food that God had given them. Thankful for the relationships, the people around them. They were together, united, looking around. Well, Christ is, is gone, but I have you, and you have me, and we have each other. They were thankful. Christians, you might find yourself in this same spot today. You are in between a time of loss and a time of abundance. You haven't reached the abundance, and the loss still hurts. It's all right. You can be thankful. You can be thankful for what you had and be thankful for what's coming. I don't know what's coming. Well, God wants good for all of us, so you can be thankful for the good that will come someday. I see letter B. They were not just united in thanksgiving in relation to where they found themselves there at that time, but we need to see letter B. Thankfulness isn't always about what you have received, but also can include what you promised I think that they were excited for what was coming. I think that their, their thankfulness definitely was, thank you for the time we had with Christ. Thank you for the, what we learned from him. But I got to tell you, if I was here, I would be on pins and needles like, this idea of the Holy Spirit, is, that, is he serious? Because look, they knew what that was, right? This is not an unknown factor to them. How would the Jews know what the filling of the Holy Spirit looked like? If they read the Old Testament, they knew exactly what it looked like. Uh, David was filled with the Holy Spirit. King Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Many of the prophets clarified to have been filled with the spirit moses filled with the spirit so they knew this was a thing but according to their understanding of history it was only a thing for a very select few called servants of god it was a thing but not a common thing it was a thing to look upon with awe and wonder. It was a thing to talk about as the Pharisees or, or anyone opened up scripture and spoke of the filling of the Holy Spirit. People would have thought with a little bit of envy, I wish I could have been David and be filled with the Spirit. I wish I could have been a prophet of old and have felt the filling of the Spirit. So when Christ said, I'm going to send the Spirit, they're probably like, seriously, like to all of us, we're all going to get the Spirit because only a few guys Men and women in the past have gotten the spirit in the past, and you're saying everyone's getting it? There was excitement, and there was an understanding of what that meant. Even in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we find that there was prophets and prophetesses uh, during the Gospels with Christ in his infancy. Uh, uh, we find that uh, there, are, there are those filled with the Spirit. So even recently, the Jews would have seen it happen occasionally and thought, that's a beautiful thing. Why can't I have that? And Christ says, you can and you will. So during this time of thankfulness, I guarantee you, they were thankful for like, I can't wait till this to happen. I can't wait for this to happen, right? Kind of like little kids in Christmas. Like they're just thankful that it's anywhere near Christmas. I can't wait for that to happen now. All right, so here they are. A time of thankfulness between loss, between a promise. But I guarantee you a lot more than looking at the loss. They were looking at the promise. 
And that is exactly how you will find success today. Should you look back and be thankful for the things you had, even though they've been lost? Yes, you should. That is a healthy way to overcome pain. Not to ignore the loss, but to be thankful for what you had before it was lost. It's been said, it is better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. You can disagree with that statement if you like, but I totally agree with it. I think it's, I think it's spot on. It's better to have known and had been known, loved and to have been loved, than to have never at all. Okay, so we should look back with thankfulness. That helps you overcome the pain of loss. But the best, best advice I can give you for success in every way of your life, physical, emotional, spiritual, is to look up to the blessings that are to come, to look towards the promises God has given you, to look to eternity. In fact, I'm not making this up. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're given the armor of God. And one of the pieces of armor is the helmet. And when I was young, I thought, what in the world is that helmet? The helmet of salvation. Does that mean to be saved? Because if the, if the, if the armor of God is given to Christians and one of the pieces is to be saved, how can a Christian be saved again to put on the armor if they already were saved? I was perplexed. I did some research. I did some studying. I, did some, I spent time in prayer. And over time, it wasn't like one day, oh, I got it. It, it was like a slow fade where I, find, I slowly, okay, all right, I get it. Oh, okay, yeah, I do. I understand it now. Okay, it was like that for me. And so what I finally came to understand is the helmet of salvation is not to be saved because I've already stated. The armor of God is given to someone who already is saved. The helmet of salvation is the mindset of what salvation gives you. It is place, It is covering your mind, because the helmet does that, covering your mind, covering your thoughts with the promise of salvation, with the hope of our salvation, with the eternal knowledge that eventually we're going to heaven. I believe that the helmet of salvation is, as other passages of Scripture in the New Testament refer to, the hope of our salvation. And if you keep in your mind, ever before you, the hope of your salvation, the knowledge that the best is definitely yet to come. Always. No matter how good it gets, the best is yet to come. Eternity is the best. No matter how bad it gets, don't worry. The best is yet to come. Eternity is the best. That if you can keep your head, your thoughts on an eternal view, you can overcome anything. Any discouragement, any pain, any offense, any hardship is overcome when you are reminded, well, that's all right. I'm not here to stay anyways. I'm just passing through. <laughs> I'm going there. What happens to me on the way is just on the way. This isn't the end game. This isn't the end of my journey. This is not where I'm going to stay forever. Praise the Lord. This idea of the fountain of youth is a curse, not a blessing. Who wants to stay in this life on this earth forever? Not me. I'm going somewhere better. Amen. The helmet of salvation is that hope, is that knowledge. God has a blessing for me. Eternity, salvation, heaven, eternal presence with him, you look to that, there is always something to be thankful for. You might find yourself between the two. That's all right. Look ahead and you'll get through what is now. So we see in this same chapter, verse one, contentment, verse one, is a product of thankfulness. For let's see here. In verse one, it says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now go to verse 46. So we see them spending a time of thanksgiving with each other. They're obviously thankful, of one mind, thankfulness. What is the result? Verse 46, and they 
continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. That word singleness, you might think it means focus. It does imply focus, but it actually means like simpleness. Singleness means like there's not a lot of chaos going on. There's not other things that are distracting from what is really important. So singleness of heart includes this idea of focus, but actually is more of an exclusion of there's not a bunch of other things that that are stealing the show from what really matters. And what really mattered to them was Christ, God's kingdom. And so singleness definitely implies very strongly an idea of contentment. I'm not looking at that and looking at that and wishing I had that and wanting more of this. No, singleness of heart is, you know what? I'm good. I'm good with what I've got. I'm good with what God has done for me because my focus is not on me or what I want. My focus is on God's kingdom. So I'm good with what I've got. When you are thankful, you will be content. If you are struggling to find contentment, it is because you are not striving to be thankful. You say, Pastor Russ, there's nothing to be thankful for. We're basically going back on our points now. Well, there is something to be thankful for, what you had and what you're going to get. There may not be something to be thankful for now. I think that's a highly high dislike, uh, high, high, unlikely thing to have happened. I think there's always something to be thankful for now. But even if that's true, even if there is nothing to be thankful for now, there is always to be something to be thankful for that did happen. And for Christians, always something to be thankful for that will happen. And so as you are thankful, you will find contentment. And what does the Bible say? Godliness with contentment is great gain. And then you are fulfilled. You see, envy empties you. Envy takes everything you can enjoy from you, and now you find joy in nothing. Contentment fulfills you. There is no emptiness that has to be filled with sinful relationships, sinful actions. There is no emptiness that has to be filled with selfishness. You are completely filled. And isn't it ironic that you find fulfillment when you recognize you're good? I'm good with God. Everything I've got, I have. Everything I could need, God's given me. If not yet, later. I'll get it later. Thankfulness leads to contentment, leads to fulfillment. And fulfillment is a great place to be in life. Feeling filled. All right, letter B. I'm sorry, number two, excuse me. So we see united in thanksgiving. Now let's see number two, united in worship, verse 42. We're going to skip down now past Peter's famous message where thousands get saved at the end of this message, where Peter's speaking in tongues, uh, speaking foreign languages that other people can hear. Let's jump past all of that. Let's go to verse 42 and see what the Bible has to say. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. This is after the day of Pentecost, after thousands were saved. Then those thousands that were saved, along with the 120 that were originally saved, continued together still in unity. Now they're continuing in unity of worship. Letter A, our worship deepens by what we know, not what we feel. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And then they go on talking about breaking of bread and of prayer. This is worship. But the worship was a byproduct of truth being embraced. The worship was not a byproduct of an emotional high. 
Christians, you have got to stop looking for that emotional high. Emotions come, emotions go, up and down. It's part of life. You don't have to do much for it to happen because things will happen around you that will cause your emotions to go up and down. It's going to happen. Stop looking for a constant high. You will get yourself in trouble when you're looking for a constant emotional high because inevitably a friendship will get a little stale because it's humanity. And if you're looking for the constant high, you will abandon that good friendship for a new friendship that gives you a shot in the arm only for that new friendship to lose its newness and get another new friendship abandoning in the last. And your life will be a series of burnt bridges because you constantly look, were looking for higher ground emotionally. Even more dangerous in romantic relationships, which, by the way, is essentially the definition of most dating relationships. It is not, I want to get to know you deeper. Are you someone I can trust? Are we going in the same direction? Uh, well, can I bring you success while you bring me success? Most dating relationships are not that. Teens and adults, most dating relationships are, I feel good around you. You make me feel good. Basically, I'm on a high when I'm with you. And so we use the words, I'm in love with you when I'm on that high. And then when I'm off the high, because you can't, no one person can keep you on that high. No, God can and chooses not to. No human is capable of doing that for you. And so inevitably, that romantic relationship starts to take a dip. And so you break up. I'm falling out of love. And you have a new relationship, brings newness and excitement. And you start back at that high again. And you ride that wave for as long as you can till it starts to go down. And a new relationship, and you ride that new wave. And dating relationships, unfortunately, in most people's lives, is jumping from one wave to the next. And again, a series of burnt bridges, broken trust, and hurt feelings along the way. You're not actually finding out, are we good for each other? You're asking yourself, do you make me feel good around each other? Not the same thing. You're searching for an emotional high. Christians do the same thing with church families looking for one new worship service after the next because the newness of the worship service gets you on a high. But when you start to dip, you go to a new worship service, which gets you on a high, start to dip, and it's the same thing. Burnt bridges, broken trust, hurt feelings with Christian groups of people. Stop. The goal is not to ride the emotional high. The goal is to get a deeper knowledge of Christ. And then let that deeper knowledge of Christ drive your actions, your thoughts, your relationships, your worship, and yes, even your emotions. Stop letting your emotions determine your actions and let your knowledge determine your actions. Stop letting your emotions affect your knowledge, have your knowledge affect your emotions. Your knowledge tells your emotions what to feel, not your emotions telling your knowledge what to think. Your emotions are fickle, immature, weak, the weakest part of you. I'm not saying be emotionless. No. I'm saying don't be controlled by them. Stop writing the emotional highs. And you see here in verse 42, the church, the first church, was not about an emotional experience. It was about what do we not know and how can we go deeper? Knowledge of Christ drove their worship. But it wasn't just knowledge, was it? We find in their worship letter B, the church cannot exist without fellowship. Did you know that the word church literally means assembly, fellowship, gathering? When you say, I'm going to church, that actually is true. I know it's been said, well, you're not going to church, you are the church. No, I mean, 
I'm going to a fellowship. I'm going to a gathering. All right, that that actually makes grammatical sense, and and in our heads, you know, is logical. I understand that we are the church, and so we're meeting with the church. But actually, the real truth, although we are the church, is we are the body of Christ. And when the body of Christ gets together, they become the church. They become a gathering of family of God. They become a gathering of uh, of of God's body. And when they become the gathering, they are now the church. The church is meeting. When you're away, yes, you are part of the church. I get that. But the church means gathering. And you can't have a church without a gathering. You can't, you can't have church from home watching online. I'm not belittling our online. I love the fact that we have online. And I recognize that there are people who need to be home, health reasons, age. Uh, there, are, there are things going on in their family. So I am not in any way trying to cause anyone to feel guilt by watching online right now or at any time. I am just stating a fact. Can you be a Christian and watch online? Most definitely. Can you be a servant of God and watch online? Yes, you can. Can you be a disciple of Christ and watch online? Yes, obviously. Can you be saved? Yes, all these things. Yes, yes, yes. Can you be part of God's church and watch online? I'd like to say yes, but the answer is no. Because you cannot be at a gathering if you're not at the gathering. (laughs) You can't be part of the fellowship if you're not with the fellowship. So there is one thing you cannot be if all you do is watch online. You cannot be the church. You cannot be the gathering if you're not gathering. I am not saying you're going to hell for watching online. I'm not saying you're a worse Christian for watching online. I'm not saying God doesn't love you for watching online. I'm saying you can't gather when you don't gather. And we find that for the first century church, they loved gathering. They loved getting together. So much so, they were doing it every day. And they gathered together every day, daily meeting. Does that mean every Christian gathered at one place every day? No. Remember, this church is thousands of people strong, growing by the thousands weekly, all right? I don't think it would mean that, you know, I would be at every meeting all week. It would mean that I'd be at two or three, someone else would be at two or three, someone else would be at two or three. But in some way, somewhere in the city of Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem, the gathering of believers, were gathering somewhere every day. And if you wanted to gather with God's people every day, you had a place to do that. That's what it means. They loved gathering. It was important to them. Why was it important? I believe it was important because they recognized the need for connection and fellowship. And when you lose connection and fellowship, you are on your way towards discouragement and self-destruction because when you are alone, you are easily broken. When you are alone, you are easily broken. What, what does Ecclesiastes tell us? Twofold, threefold cord, not easily broken. Two together, keep each other warm. One alone, cold. Two together, help each other up. One alone, more likely to stay down. When you are alone, you are more likely to be broken. Are you feeling broken? Do you feel broken emotionally, spiritually, physically? Joining with God's church, the gathering, is just a step towards success because one of the deepest feelings of loneliness is when you're surrounded by people that don't know you. Just being in the presence of people doesn't mean you're actually part of the gathering. It just means you're in a gathering. To be part of a gathering requires connection. The first century church knew that, and they focused on that. Why? Because they didn't want people falling or breaking or running. We are stronger 
together. And that's why we're called a church. Letter C. The first church sought after Christ. What was the focus of the church? What was the mission of the church? What was the one heart of the church? What was it that united them, that caused them together and come together in one accord? Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord, prayer and supplication. Prayer and supplication towards two, obviously Christ. Verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine of who? Of Christ. Verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as be saved. Their focus was Christ and therefore their blessing came from Christ. Their focus was on Christ which drew them closer to Christ which brought the blessings of Christ to them in abundance. They came together with one accord and that one accord, that unity was not philosophy, was not personal preference was not experience they didn't come together because they all had the same experience they didn't come together because they all had the same idea of what politics should look like they didn't come together because they had the same philosophy of dress or music or of outreach they came together because they had the one heart of christ they were there for christ because of that christ did the rest When you gather together as Christ's church for the right reason, you'll get to see Christ do great things. That's what I started with, right? If you're not united, you're not going to move forward. When we are united, not just with each other, but with Christ, the shepherd of our gathering, we'll move forward with him and see him do great things with us. Number three. So we saw united in thanksgiving, united in worship, and number three, united in purpose. Verse 43, fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And some say, ha, the first century church was communist, it was socialist. Those that were rich, uh, the stuff was taken from them and given to those that were poor so that every man was equal. No, no. Communism and socialism is the government taking from the rich and essentially claiming they'll give to everyone else, but ultimately keeping for themselves. But even if, even if the paradise of socialism worked, it would still be taking to give. No, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is they are giving to take. Those in the church who had more gave so that those who had less could take from what was given. Communism and socialism is to take from you against your will. The first century church was to willfully give of their abundance so those who had less could have more. That is how Christianity looks. It is the paradise that socialism claims to offer. It is the paradise that communism claims to have achieved. But if you look historically at any country that has embraced socialism and communism, you will see something far different than paradise. What you do find in churches that embrace this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of love from one to another. Not just, I love you, now be warmed as you send them away. No, I love you. What can I do so that you are warmed when you walk away? I believe Marion Hills truly wants this. You do. 
I see it in what, how you give. I see it in not just how you give financially. I don't know individually how you give. I can only see the big numbers. And I see how you give of yourself to the events that we have giving to this community because that is our heart. You notice that most, if not all, of our events, we are giving towards those who cannot give back. Did you notice that? Purposefully so. I'm not saying occasionally there isn't something I give to someone that could give back. I don't do it to that. But most of our events, most of our opportunities to show the community love is for those people who they have no opportunity to ever give back to us, and that's okay. That's not why we're doing it. We're giving because God gave us way more than we could ever use in a proper way. So we want to give to those who don't have. Well, Pastor Russ, they're not Christians, so. Pastor Russ, they don't go to your church, so. They're loved by God. They're his creation. And when I see Jesus Christ on earth, Christ wasn't only giving to his disciples, was he? Christ was feeding thousands of people, many of which ended up walking away from him later when, they, when he said things they didn't like hearing. They walked away from him. Christ was doing miracles for some people who didn't even follow his instructions and obey him after he gave the miracle. Christ didn't limit his blessings and giving only to his closest uh, confidence, right? He gave it to all. And I want to represent Christ, so we do the same here. United in purpose. Our purpose is Christ. Has to be that way, always. We cannot change the purpose of Meriden Hills Baptist Church is Christ and his kingdom. But I will tell you this. While our purpose is Christ and his truth, we can represent his love along the way and need to represent his love along the way and are required to, in obedience, represent his love along the way. Well, Pastor Russ, what good does giving infant clothing to the community do for the kingdom of Christ? You know what? Amen. It may not bring even one person to their knees in recognition they need Christ, but that's not why I'm doing it. We are representing Christ's truth in what we say and how we live and in the actions that we make. But as we're doing this, as we're going, let's also give. Let's also love. One doesn't need to eradicate the other. Well, I love the community, therefore I can't live truth. Well, I've lived truth, therefore I can't love the community. What are you talking about? That is exactly what Christ did. He lived the truth while loving the people. One can be done while the other is happening. Our focus is not to provide infant clothing to the community. That is not our mission statement here at Meriden Hills. Our mission statement is the glory of God and the souls of men. That's why we're here to do what we do. But as we're doing that, let's clothe some babies as we go, right? Let's feed some families as we go. It's okay to do both. United in their purpose. I feel like they had the same idea. Their purpose ultimately was Christ. But they said, as we go through this journey of life, what can we do to help one another? Letter A, the first church desired the success of all. Those who are wealthy and had more said, hey, if, if I can give a little more to help you find success, I'm your man. I'm your woman. Let's do this. Let's make this happen. And you see how they sold their possessions, verse 45, and their goods and parted them to all men, not just some men men here being people, not just the male gender, to all people. It was parted to all people by those who had more, willingly, because they loved. Their focus was Christ. Truth, yes, but they can love along the way. Letter B, the first church sacrificed for the success of all. Not only did they desire the success of others, they actually acted on that desire 
Hey, it's one thing to watch a commercial that makes you cry when you see a little puppy who's uh, eaten with fleas and the hair is mangy, falling off the thing, and tears are coming down your eyes. It is one thing to cry in that commercial and then 40 seconds later to completely forget it. You had a desire to do something and you did nothing. Now, that's a puppy. That's an animal. How much more when it's people? Oh, my heart is broken for the people that are hurting in our community. Okay, what now? What do we do now? Oh, my heart is hurting for the people in our fellowship that are hurting. Great, now what? What do you mean now what? I'll just hurt some more. What is that? What good does that do them? Hey, brother, I'm hurting for you. Okay, thank you. I'm hurting for you too. Okay, I mean, like what? What? What are we doing, folks? This first century church said, the desire's not enough. Let's put some action to that desire. Let's do something that actually does hurt us, right? Like, oh, I'm hurting for you. You know what? I'm actually going to hurt. I'm going to take a hit. I'm going to give you something that I have that belongs to me. I'm going to take the hit and give it to you because I'm hurting for you. I want you to hurt less, so I'm going to take an actual hit, not a metaphorical hit, right? This church is great at that. Folks, I don't want to turn this message into a plea for giving. That is not my intention. What I want to say is this. My desire as a pastor is to help hurting people in our church and out of our church. We have the Samaritan ministry to help hurting people in our church, and we have the outreach ministry to help people out of our church. And we as a church decided that a percentage of the overall giving goes towards those who are hurting. If you say, Pastor Russ, I also have a desire to help hurting people, then I can tell you there is something you can do about that. This is Missions Month. We give towards missions worldwide. We give towards missions in our community. And we give towards missions in our own church, reaching the hurting. Not always a loss. Sometimes the hurting are lost. Sometimes the hurting are saved. We, we help and reach the hurting. You can do that by giving. And the more that this church gives, the more that this church can do to reach the hurting. And as we reach the hurting, let me ask you this. Would you rather someone reach the hurting who loves God or who hates God? Would you rather someone reach the hurting who knows truth or who denies truth? Would you rather have a believer help the hurting or an unbeliever help the hurting? Now, look, honestly, I'd rather both. I would rather, like, you know, saved, unsaved, organizations that are, that are godly, organizations that are nonprofit, secular. I mean, we still need those. I'm not saying that we just shut them down. But I'm saying if I had to choose between one or the other, if I had to choose, I would choose believers, saved, godly, truth lovers all day, every day. All day. That's us. We need to be out there helping the hurting. We need to be in here helping the hurting. We need to be across the world supporting others who are helping the hurting. But us just saying we have a desire to do it is not the same as actually doing it. So what are you going to do? What are you willing to give towards helping the hurting? Because the less you give, the less we do. The more you give, the more you do. And that is not blackmail. That is not manipulation. That is not controlling your pocketbook. It is a statement that this church has operating costs. And I want to tell you, We are giving 25%. 25% of our operating costs goes towards others who are hurting. 25%. 10% towards world missions. 
10% towards local missions, 5% towards people in this church that are hurting. That's 25% that our church is dedicated towards outreach in some form or fashion here and abroad. Our Jerusalem, our church, our Samaria, our community, the uttermost parts of the earth, across the world. For every $4 given, $1 is going towards someone else outside of, you might say, operating costs to keep the church going. Folks, I'm not trying to brag. I'm saying that's pretty high. (laughs) So if you are giving, then you are accomplishing your desire of wanting to help people. And then let us see, and we're done. The first church discovered success through Christ. In verse 47, because they had one mind of heart, one one mind of Christ, one heart of Christ, they were united in their purpose for Christ and his kingdom. In verse 47, they're praising God, having favor with all the people. By the way, I love that. As you seek to help the hurting, you'll gain the favor of people. And that is exactly what's happening. We're not doing it for that reason. Um, our, Our outreach program coming up for the infant clothing. I had now, again, every time I do this, people saying, we love your church. Your church is amazing. We need more churches like that. You guys are doing it right. Uh, your church is such a blessing. We, Meriden Hills, have favor with the community. Why? Because we're representing Christ. And when you represent Christ, that is a favorable thing. And verse 47, Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Success is not found through human efforts. Success is found through Christ's blessing. Our efforts as a fellowship of believers is not to help the hurting so we can have success. It is to help the hurting so that they can see that God is the best path of success. And as we focus on God and his kingdom, God, I believe very strongly, will bring success to his people, to this people. Let's keep God the focus. Let's keep truth the focus. But as we go, let's love people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this truth that we saw today in the book of Acts chapter 2. United. I pray that we would stand united in what we do and why we do it. Who we follow and how we follow. I pray that our unity would be in Christ alone And that as we go, as we follow you, as we serve you in your kingdom, we would love people. In Jesus' name.